Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Youssef. And joining me in studio today, we've got Amina Ziad. Hey, everyone. And Zach Ahmed, as hey, well hey. as... Uh, oh, hey. You just cut me off. I, I did didn't even cut... get to say hi. I did, sorry. You can do it now. No, I don't want to say hi now. I'll, I'll say hi for you. Hi, listeners, on behalf of, of Zach. <laughs> oh, and, and the person laughing in the background is none other than our special guest today, Soreti Kadir. Hi, everyone. Hey. hey. All right. <laughs> now, I feel like I'm cutting off people today. No, you're not cutting anyone off. No, no, keep going. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Except me. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. Okay. Except anyway. Sorry, Zach. Um, before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the calling people as the owners on land. We, uh, I'll say it again. We acknowledge the calling people as the owners of the land we, in which we meet and pay respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago to continue to this day. You're listening to a one hour show where we talk politics, current affairs, popular culture with a little bit of a twist. As I said before, we have Sorati Kadir in studio today. We're going to be talking to her a little bit later. We'll, we'll tell you exactly why shortly. Uh, before that, we're going to be, we'll be looking at the continual mistreatment of refugees and asylum seekers with the latest news that the government are set to allow up to 37 infants to be sent to Nauru. Um, the woman that cheated death and the biggest real-life plot twist um, Zach will have that and more, um, mm-hmm. and and we feature our feature discussion is going to be on the history of blackface and why the hell are white people in Australia so obsessed with it? Um, and you know, right now I think we're going to go into we'll leave black blackface to the side and, and talk to, talk about something a little bit more comforting. Um, thank you for coming on the show, Sodeti. Thank you for having me, Ahmed and uh, Amina and Zach. <laughs> thank you for including me in that. I'm I'm just trying to like uh you know you know I'm just trying to be accommodating right mm-hmm. now. Uh anyway, um so Soreti is an activist, co founder, um and poet. Her, she co founded In Our Own Words. Um and, and as I said, welcome to the race guard, a formal welcoming. Because we've had you in the past. Yes. But they've been kinda like kinda like phone interviews, sporadic things here and there. But now we thought gonna bring you in and we're gonna talk to you okay um no pressure at all so what we're gonna be talking to you today is so you, we've had you on the before as i said um but for the listeners that might not be so i guess um familiar with your work tell us a bit about in our own words 
Um, first of all, thank you guys for having me again in the studio to have, a, I guess, an elongated conversation about things. I too would like to acknowledge that um, we are meeting on the land of the Kulin Nation and that the land, this land was never ceded, the sovereignty of this land was never ceded, um, and uh, pay respects to elders both past and present. Uh, a little bit about my work. <clears throat> so... That is, that is becoming more and more of a difficult question to answer as the days go by. I'm not even joking. Just because, you know, what do I do? I do a lot of different things. Um, in our own words, an organization that myself and Aisha Tufa co-founded together in 2014 is takes up a lot of my time. Um, recently, we, we had a convention called Black Voices in Footscray, which I guess really epitomizes the, the what it is that we're about, which is giving platforms to black African, Afro-black people um, in Australia at the moment, you know, to, to, to speak their minds, to commune, to gather, to explore ideas, to collectively raise, I guess, consciousness of who we are in this country, who we are as people in this world. Um, so that's essentially what In Our Own Words does in a lot of different ways. We run a weekly um, history program as well, or like just a, a, a collective of people who come together and talk about African history, um, curated with topics on each week. Um, so we, we, we essentially are a community mobilization organization. You know, we sometimes we have a lot of long-term things and long-term aims and goals and plans, but also we also do a lot of like um, snap action things or like come up with, you know, so there's not really a way to fully, fully define what does in our own words do. We're a collective of people, an organization of people that come together um, and that create things for the betterment of our community, whatever that may look like and wherever we can really give our skills to in that space. Um, my work as a poet, uh, I started spoken word poetry in Melbourne maybe a year, it's over, been over a year now. And in that time, um, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of really cool things. Um, I've been to the National Young Writers Festival in Newcastle. I've uh, also had the opportunity of presenting my work at the um, 29th Annual Conference of the Oromo Studies Association in D.C. last August. Um, I recently released my my first collection of poetry, written poetry, um, in the book Sianne, or like the collection of poetry called Sianne. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's an array of things. And aside from that, I guess the activist part, you know, it's really hard to define, as you guys will all know, I'm sitting in a room full of activists right now. It's hard to define what it is that, yeah, everyone's looking at me like, mm, no, <laughs> yes. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's hard to self self-imagine yourself in that idea of an activist mm -hmm. and you know say to mm -hmm. yourself or others what that means so even for me i'm like oh, i don't really kind of know but i guess i'm very passionate about issues that affect my community here in australia issues that affect indigenous communities mm -hmm. worldwide and issues that affect my people oromo people um both in ethiopia oromia and in the diaspora um so anything that is pertinent to any of those areas or any of those spaces is something that i give my time and energy to and you know you've uh, you've worked in the community sector for a long time, and you're, you're still very young. <laughs> yeah. And something that uh, something that sparked starting in words was your work with World Vision. Yes. Talk to us about World Vision. Yes. Okay. So this is let's let's put this out there. This is the first kind of radio interview I've done. I think where I have had kind of a longer conversation about that history. Um, so excuse me if I fumble across some points. Oh no, and no. Some insights. Um, you're, you're in you're in a you're in a safe, safe place. Yeah, safe yeah you know, place, we're all cool. friends here. All right. Cool. We are too. That's that's actually really a really good thing to remind me of. Um, so with World Vision, I started out there when I was really young. So as soon as I came out of high school, um, just before I turned 18, I got the opportunity to be a youth ambassador, um, which basically means representing Victoria and Tasmania in the space of the 40-hour famine. I don't know if you guys remember that or yeah. know of that yet. Um, and at that time, just to give you some context, 
came out of high school, I went to a school where there was really limited uh, opportunity to explore anything really in the realm of politics or, or social issues. The As far as it went really for me was um, health and human development, unit three and four. And in that, there's a very specific way of presenting the issues of aid and development and my passion was not necessarily about aid and development although that's the way it manifested my passion was about my people so when i came back from um from ethiopia i went through a different process of you know becoming more acquainted with myself as a black person as an african person living in australia which i had never been i had never done my entire life you know, and in that process, and then still working with World Vision for an entire year after that, you know, I began to ask questions that were not, not, not that they were not received well, but made things very clear to me in that this organization had nothing really to do with the dreams that I had for my home or that people like me had for my home. This organization was simply just another institution in which people can come, still be privileged, you know what I mean, still feel comfortable with the world that they live in, but know that they're doing that little bit, you know what I mean, to, to, to suppress the guilt that consumes so many of us who care even a little bit about the world, you know. Um, you talk about being very young yes. um, during that period. How young were you exactly? So I was 17 when I started, and then uh, when I left, I was 19. So I, um, so just getting that idea, so you're either just completing high school, or you're just on the cusp of completing high yes, school. Yes, Um, You growing up in a very like tight-knit community, yes. and you, your idea of anything outside of that is very limited. Yes, very much so. Um, and just imagining that an organization mm. that is a multi, probably a multi- million, million yes. multi-million dollar organization with immense experience um so many people at the head of that and making decisions mm, mm, mm. why do you think they um decided to think hey why don't we pluck a 17 year old whose worldview is very limited mm. whose experience in any kind of community development field is slightly limited as well mm. um because we can exploit them I think, um, okay, so that's, there's two answers to that question. One is the role itself is exactly what you said. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the youth ambassador role doesn't have much substance to it, you know? It's about taking people that just have the passion, you know, for the cause or like care about it in some way, can public speak, can publicly speak in some, some way, you know what I mean? And to take them and basically indoctrinate them, you know, for lack of a better word, with the ideals of this organization and then get them to be the mouthpiece to then bring in money for this organization. Do you know what I mean? Like, essentially, if we break it down, that is what the youth ambassador role is, you know? And um, in picking me, you know, that's, that's something that I've asked myself a lot. Like, why was it me? And I mean, I think I had a lot of the qualities that, you know, would have made me great for that role. Public speaking, you know what I mean? Knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. But, you know, there were some things about my trip in Malawi and just my time in, within the organization altogether that made me kind of think that it had a lot more to do with the things that you mentioned, like, um, you know, the, the attributes of myself that others just don't have. So being African, being living with a physical disability, so not having a left arm. And I will, you know, give you one example, you know, that brought these thoughts to light for me was when I was in Malawi, you know, first of all, on this trip, you know, there is a there is a marketing side to it, you know, as, as there always is with with such organizations. Um, and so there was somebody who before I went and met this this girl, Dorothy, who became the focus child for the campaign for the 40 hour famine. And uh, it was I was told that she also lives with a physical disability. Um, and she, she has one leg that is paralyzed as a result of a, a medical procedure that went wrong when she was a, a lot younger. Um, and, you know, this was told to me before I went in. Uh, and positioned as, as as being told to me because 
you know, as a precaution so that I wasn't shocked and so that I wasn't whatever. The reality is I wouldn't have even thought about it. I just, I, I was not conscious of that at that stage and never really would be, you know. I would have never looked at her and been like, oh my gosh, she has a disability too. We're going to connect over that, blah, blah, blah. This is going to be great. I would have never in my life put two and two together. You know what I mean? I just, that's not how I thought, you know. I was really young. I just thought we're going to a community. We're about to meet some children. You know, I'm really excited to be here. Um, and then slowly slowly i realized that that was the narrative you know of, of that i was myself reflecting to everyone these thousands of people you know throughout this entire year the narrative of me the 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 disabled woman who had the opportunity to leave ethiopia you know i make this life for her blah 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 got got to go to malawi meet a young girl who also has a disability but also but does not have the opportunities that i had and so look at how great i am give her the opportunity to you know just really messed up stuff and um, being in a situation, being who I was then, you know, very young then, very malleable, you know, very, very, and had no sense of self, absolutely no sense of self. And this is no one's fault. This is, I mean, it is many people's faults, but I can't put this on the organization and say, you know, blah, 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 you, 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 um, you, you, I didn't have a sense of self. How did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. But the reality was that there were, there were things imposed on me, ideals imposed on me that had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with what I thought, you know, but I took on and created, you know, into a narrative of myself that I bought into you know that i really bought into you, you talk about not um i guess putting fault into the organization but i feel like I, like don't you think like um kind of an accountability is necessary especially yeah. a young person who's vulnerable a young person who hasn't experienced um being in this setting before mm. and you have you know what i mean people who are whatever management level whatever kind of be mm. um in that organization know all about young people who mm. they've mentored before mm. and whatever mm-hmm. um do you, like, do you I, think it's a negligence in, 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 in that sense? Then? I think if I look at it objectively, there is, definitely, objectively. But you have to remember, it's not an objective experience for me, you know. Mm. There's still a lot of trauma related to what I went, not necessarily what I went through there, but what I went through in my life there and the, the, the things I was forced to realise, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, my heart was always in the same place, you know what I mean? As it will be until I die, it's always going to be, you know, for my people, you know. And starting to realize that what you've been doing for an entire year has nothing to do with your people, you know, and you invested so much into that, you know, you believed that so much, you know, you gave so much of yourself to that. And then, you know, so for me, it's not a really objective experience. And so the accountability definitely is on the organization and there should have been, you know, and that role in itself, the youth ambassador role is, is, is in its nature exploitative, I believe. You know what I mean? You're taking young people who have very little knowledge of the world who are usually coming out of high school, you know, just at that point or have only been out of high school a limited amount of time. But also that's the nature of the role. And I brought something to it that I think that role was not catered to actually handle. You know what I mean? Because before myself, and I don't know what the history of the youth ambassadors have been in the past, you know, but before myself, there have always been just, you know, white middle class people who went to you know schools in which they were you know just rich schools and just privileged backgrounds and you know this experience that i went through you will not find many people who speak of it in the same way now it's still something quite positive for a lot of the ambassadors who came out of do do you also find the way they positioned you talking about how um woman with disability comes good and look at this young girl we gotta we gotta send her somewhere and she'll become just like a kind of framing you 
in in this sort of making your your disability a sort of making you like a victim and 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 shaping your life and and how you've lived as a sort of victimhood kind mm. of like mm. kind of aspect. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I really, really do. And that was, I mean, if you were to go back and read any of the newspaper articles or even Dolly magazine, like any of the radio interviews I did at that time, you know, that's all I was talking about, and that's the only narrative that was really there. And it was the reason I left. This is the reason I had, you know, I had every opportunity to excel in that organization, you know, multiple opportunities to excel in that organization. And if I had stayed, God knows where I would be today, you know. But that was the reason I left. It was because no longer did I see myself reflected in this narrative. I was portraying the narrative that this organization was in, was imposing onto me. Nothing felt true anymore, you know. And also these, the, 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 the going back to what I mentioned before about, questions that were being asked that I was asking and I was asking these questions in the context of presenting the story of Rwanda in 2014 and this was the 20 years of the since the genocide had happened there and it was in this process that I slowly 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 even though I stuck through it I did it all I did all the conventions but this is when I slowly started to realize that there are questions that simply will not be answered here mm -hmm. in this institution and these questions mm -hmm. interrogate race interrogate um, you know, relationships of race and development. They interrogate the way that we uh, market and we present issues of the third world to 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 a majority white middle class audience. And we also it, all these questions also interrogate the relationship between um, money. You know what I mean? And marketing, money and marketing. And so often we refer to we refer to how will the, the supporter receive this? And we talk about the supporter, meaning the people who pay, you know, a certain amount of money every single month. How will the re re reporter relate to this? A supporter relate to this, sorry. How will the, you know, it's always about the supporter. And I was like, I ain't here for the supporter though. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. maybe I was a year mm -hmm. ago, but really that's not why I mm -hmm. ever wanted to do this. It was never for the supporter. Um, and... So making these narratives of that are real people, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and also uh, uh, using the guise of we're humanizing these stories, you know what I mean? We're putting a face to the billion and whatever number of people are. How about redistributing the, the, the wealth that is causing or like the, in the, the inequality of wealth that is actually causing these injustices? That's never been a focus of, of any of the work or any of the supporterness that we're talking about, you know what I mean? It's such a inherently fundamentally colonial and flawed system. Right. Um, so Ahmed and I, we kind of talk about this off air. And one of the things we talked about was how NGOs are basically modern day missionaries um, to further, mm. you know, particular agenda. And um, so just hearing everything you had to say kind of like harks back to like mm. a lot of the conversations we have pre-show, mm. um, which is really great. And thank you for um, sharing those stories with us. Um, so just on off tangent, um, yeah. you spoke about how a lot of the youth ambassadors in the past were, you know, white middle class. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about how these things don't change anything. And mm -hmm. this is just like, you know, I'm doing a little bit of good. So therefore, I'm guilt free mm -hmm. type of organization. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I'm kind of like interested in is wh what is the real purpose of organizations like World Vision? Is this is this truly like a take off guilt kind of organization mm. or is this I for me I feel like it's a little bit more insidious um I feel like there is a sense of status quo mm. and keep keeping people down mm. through these organizations mm. um I don't know if there's any truth to that and then also <laughs> sort of uh satiating the the white savior complex as well yeah. Satiating. Mm, mm, mm. That's a nice word. That's a nice Thank word. You. You're gonna have to Thank tell me you. what it means after the show. But pretend what it means for like I know what it uh, means yeah. for now. We, we know. <laughs> you know, it's a safe face. But yeah. um, <laughs> both really good questions, and it's a complicated one because 
when I first came out of World Vision and I started talking about, not really, like amongst my friends and stuff, there was a line I would always use and it's that I will never discredit World Vision's work on the field. You know what I mean? Why I say that, although all of the issues that we're talking about are evident on the field as well, the white saviour complex and the, the relationship that, and this is, I also need to make clear that I only speak in the context of development in the African continent because that's really all I know and that's really all I experience with that organisation. Um, and so they're, they're pertinent there as well, these issues. But you, it's kind of like, how can I make a judgment when this person, is, these people are also being employed? Do you know what I mean? It's always people that live in these communities that be, are employed by these organisations. And you've got to give credit where credit is due. Um, but in, let's go back to how this still how we still see ideals of white supremacy and ideals of the status quo and keeping the masses suppressed evident in this process too. Um, if we go to when I was, uh, I was in a, it was a small project and it was, you know, women, mothers who were feeding, who were helping uh, basically eradicate malnutrition from the community or something like that through some kind of grassroots program. The, the, the details of the program are irrelevant. What is relevant is one of the mothers, when talking to us about this program, her response was, you know, thank you so much, World Vision, for what you have done for our community. When I looked at what was going on, World Vision had really had nothing to do with it. What happened was the mother said, our children are malnourished. They went and they, they, they got the support that they needed to create this program to now eradicate malnutrition from their community. That's all I really saw, you know. But in bringing in these organizations and the representatives of these organizations, whether the, there is a white face there or not, the success is still equated to it's because of whiteness. It's because of the West. It's not because of what we can do. It's not because of us. You know what I mean? The mobilization only goes so far and it doesn't get to a point where the, where people actually believe that they can be self-defining. You know what I mean? That's not the inherent, that's not why those organizations are there. And so you're right when you say that they are very much there to stabilize the status quo and to keep people, uh, I guess, I guess content in, in their situation of, 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 really powerlessness there's a program that they run um called global one or something like that and it's all about sending people just into these communities just go in have a look for two weeks come out and go talk about it to people this launched around the time that i was there you know what i mean i remember having specific conversations with people about it they, they ran in uganda you had the programs in uganda you had them in nepal you had them in i don't even know where else but the point was there was absolutely no use for this program to the people that were in these communities, nothing. You're creating a circus out of development projects, literally creating a circus. You're, you're creating an environment where in which white people come in, feel fantastic about themselves and leave, right? Yeah, you remind me of something um, back in the early days of the war on terror. One of the things that the American troops wanted to do is that they wanted to win the hearts and minds. And uh, for me, I feel like this is trying to win the hearts and minds mm -hmm. of the people who are very impoverished. Yes, um, yes. It's kind yeah. of like emotional sabotage because on oh, the one yeah. hand, they feel like that, you know, oh, these white people have come mm. to help us and to, you know, give yeah. give to our community and help us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're not doing shit for you. Like, mm. they are doing absolutely I nothing mean, for you. On the one but, hand, they're taking, they're looting you. On the other hand, they're helping you. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's a little yeah. bit of a... Mm. To me, an oxymoron, like mm -hmm. in in practice, mm -hmm. if you can say that. But I mean, if, sorry. Uh, but but also like um, I remember, particularly um, at Black Voices, mm -hmm. Solome, um, one of the guests who runs a um, NGO called what was it called again? Uh, Africans in the diaspora. Africans in diaspora, mm -hmm. and she told us um, that Africans in diaspora mm -hmm. send more money to to Africa than. Um, then all then of all the, the US aid. Oh, exactly. what specific all, 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 statistic is US aid? Yeah. US aid. And, and the thing is, like, 
um, Africans in diaspora are the biggest resource for Africa. Mm. Um, and also, like, I read this, there was this, um, there was this article, like, a few years ago about aid and how it breaks down mm. and how much of the money is then taken away. Mm. And we all know about how France uh, still collects... Um, uh, the benefits of colonialism mm. uh, money mm. from at least 14 African countries mm. so that kind of th idea and also like I remember talking to someone and they were like if you view um, the way people help you is mm. through having white people helping you mm. continually and that breeds this idea that you can't help yourself mm. right mm. Um, you're constantly waiting for this white savior as we say this mm. this this, this white knight mm. to come out and, and save you from from malnourishment or or poverty or, or whatever it is and and that that doesn't breed any self self determination mm. or, or or anything like that uh, yeah and you're so so right like in what Amina was saying and exactly what you said um, Ahmed that you're being looted on an exponential level you know what I mean and on the other hand by the same hand you know what I mean you're, you're being given morsels of what is being taken from you. But those morsels are enough to make sure that you never interrogate why that inequality is there. You know, and this goes back to like, the like we, people are capitalizing, these organizations are, and also like World Vision is still an inherently, you know, ideologically Christian organization. You know what I mean? And I was visibly Muslim when I joined that organization too. I wore a hijab. Um, and this, you know, like, there's just so much so many things that made me feel like you know i was the token everything you know what i mean and that was the only real reason i think that i felt any kind of acceptance in that space you know because i didn't in any other way did my no in no other way were my experiences reflected in this organization you know what i mean but it made to feel so special in everything that i was you know and and in that being so exploited and so manipulated and enforcing me even to manipulate those parts of me you know and and to visibilize those parts mm -hmm. of me to further that acceptance you know what i mean the more mm -hmm. i play on the the muslim girl card the more i play on the disability card the more i play on the black card the more i'm going to be accepted in this because that's really all i have to offer you know mm -hmm. and when i brought to the surface the intellectual capacity i had you know to interrogate mm -hmm. the situation yeah. that was shut out you know, because it's just there is no space there because then that destabilizes the status quo that this organization is here to protect. But at the same time, like the these areas in which these programs actually run and where, you know, is, is literally in, 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 the, in many stages now in revolution, you know, has, has moved into a, in a state of revolt completely. There is no space for these organizations in, in places or in times when Africans actually become self-defining. You become irrelevant. You know what I mean? So if we want to become self-defining and that is the aim for the entire continent, then really where is the place for any of these organizations? You know what I mean? You've gone through a tremendous journey from starting at World Vision at 17, from leaving at 19, from starting your own, making a documentary, mm. um, the Inner Words documentary, mm. and then starting Inner Words. Mm. Like what? What is next for Soretti in 2016? Oh what, 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 is, what is going to be that next step? Because so far... I think you're you're 21, and yeah. it, you, you've had a very tumultuous time already. Yeah, 2016. I mean, the Oromo protests, and we can kind of go back to that for a second. You know, is is been a defining part in in understanding my own activism, because it really forces you to interrogate well, who are you as a member of the diaspora, you know, and especially when you're passionate about issues of the home, um, and so. 2016 will be a continuous journey of still trying to understand all of these things but in terms of how they manifest in activities and and and, and so on i really want to 
focus a lot on my art this year um so you may or may not be seeing some sort of like a ep or i don't know something cool you know something fun something that i can be creative about again or not again but i can continue to to creatively energize myself um and also i feel like my voice is most authentic in my poetry um and in in art sense so i really want to keep pursuing that um and this revolution or the oromo protests isn't going to end anytime soon you know what i mean and there definitely is a role for the diaspora a hundred percent um it's just trying to figure out exactly what that role is and how that role changes as the revolution moves from stage to stage to stage and then where we sit in the in the in the conversation of you know what happens post-revolution you know what i mean uh, if oromos become um you know like self-defining still in the construct of the state of, of you know federal ethiopia but you know action self-rule you know where do we come in and what what knowledge or what resource do we have here in the diaspora that can help mobilize that process and, and help forward that process um and so this year will be travel it will be continually trying to understand these things specifically um you know working with uh, ioa so the international Oromo youth association um and so this is kind of a bridge organization between many youth associations around the world trying to bring that into a place that can also be a mobilization tool for the Oromo protests um and in our own words continually trying to build that um so we have a lot of hopes and dreams for that as well so i mean it's just and the thing is too i've realized i'm not the kind of person that can stick to one thing and i'm starting to accept that and just be happy with that and you know not continuously you know try and make myself what i'm not and so it'll be moving amongst different things and maybe if we have a conversation again halfway through the year i'll be saying something completely different who knows so hopefully we, we can do that um thanks again for coming on the show and just before we do go, why don't you tell the listeners where they can maybe find you off air? Off air. Um, you can find me on Facebook. So Soreti Kadir on is like the like page. Um, have a website, Soreti B Kadir dot strikingly dot com. I know I need to get a proper URL, but you can find that link on the Facebook page. So it's all in one place. Twitter, Soreti Kadir. My name is the same all all around. So yeah, I'm on I'm online. <laughs> What's going on people? This is Akala and right now you're listening to the race card. Big up. Alright. Now we're going into our segment of the week that was where we highlight some of the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. First up, this week we saw the High Court ruled in favour of 37, 37 Australian born babies to be sent to detention centres in Nauru and Manus Island. And while I guess this is an example of how just because something is legal or legalised doesn't mean it's ethical. And, and also the way, I guess, like, we, we see uh, policy changes. And just because they change in, in terms of wording, they sometimes repeat themselves in, and I guess, more perversive ways. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We look at this and, and say, this isn't something that represents Australian culture or the way we, and I say we in quotation marks, uh, are. Less than 40 years ago, there was something called, you know, that white Australia policy. <clears throat> or I guess um, less than 50 years ago, indigenous people in Australia were considered for a, f- a fauna or flora. 
And I guess someone tweeted yesterday about not viewing progression in a linear sense. So basically, just because time progresses doesn't mean we progress with it, and doesn't mean that racism, as a result, will be like non-existent. Because, well, so far it just seems like it's just become more pervasive. Um, and I guess like, uh, but to give people, I guess, a more stark reality of it, we. We've gone to the archives, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna show you what uh, what Mark Isaac, a um, someone who worked in in Nauru um, for for an NGO, um, what he thought of the living conditions for the men at the time, because at that time there were only men at um, these detention centres. Or, well, really, are they detention centres or are they concentration camps to to an extent, right? Um, and here's uh, some of the things that he had to say. You know, the physical conditions were extremely difficult. It was hot. They were in these tents with six to ten people, you know, sleeping inside these tents on stretcher beds. Uh, and, yeah, during the rainy season, it would it'd be pretty awful as well. But the, the biggest difficulty for the men is the, um, the, the mental health uh, conditions and the, and the, the pressures on, on mental health. Uh, this concept of being placed in a prison without having any idea of when you can leave or what will happen to you. Um, uh, and so this, yeah, it's the concept of indefinite detention is, is something that places a lot of uh, stress on, on these guys' minds. Uh, and so that, that was the, the hardest part about working with these men was there was, there was no progress um, and no concept of an end to their imprisonment and no idea of what would happen to them or what their future would be like. Uh, and... As time progressed, obviously, things, in, in a, and I guess in a physical sense, slightly improved. But Mark says just because there were a physical environment that, that slightly improved, the mental being still stagnated. Interestingly enough, despite the con- physical conditions improving, the, the mental health of the men deteriorated dramatically. So by the point there was, you know, guys who attempted suicide five or six times, there were... Um, one man had locked himself in his room for over 30 days uh, and refused to leave. And just imagine that we're talking about now children going to these environments. And, and Mark even, even said he couldn't imagine the living conditions they may face and how they may survive. If you take what I've described, those conditions that I've described uh, with the men and how, how much that effect it has on those men... Uh, then place a small child uh, into those conditions. Uh, we've had complaints that uh, women have been abused, their mothers have been abused, that, uh, that there's insufficient water. Uh, if, if, it's, if it's a difficult concept to handle this indefinite future for men, how would that work with children and, and what kind of generation of children are we bringing up when we're um, placing them in, in prisons? Uh, and then potentially deporting them to, to places like Cambodia, uh, resettling them in places like Nauru, or deporting them to places like Papua New Guinea. And I guess that's that's the thing, right? Um, that's something that stuck with me. W- what's going to happen to these children? These kids that... Um, they, they, they're not even kids, they're babies. These are babies. Um, it just feels like... I feel like there's also this idea that you know, the High Court said it's okay, legally, it's all right. Um, and then there's no kind of like moral compass that kind of assesses that situation, does it? Right. 
um, I think there's, I mean, for me, when you ask that question, what's going to happen to those babies, I feel like it's just going to be a cycle. Um, there's going to be a cycle of life in limbo, basically. And I think that the difference is if that is the only life that you know and not a life of escaping. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, um, when you're seeking asylum, you move to different places. But when you are born in detention and you live in detention, that kind of life stress is all that you know. I actually think that what we're going to see is we're going to see a pattern of um, maybe like childhood depression or childhood um, severe childhood mental um, psychological disorders, illnesses, um, poor poor psychological health, which will manifest in poor physical health. Um, and and the problem with this is it's it's going to become into some kind of intergenerational trauma. You know, um, it's the trauma of parents, trauma of children, and it goes on. Yeah, and I guess like, you know, it's just there's really no words that I can actually say of how disgusting this situation is. Like, there is really nothing you can you can actually say to actually... Can you imagine being the parent of a child? You know, you don't... You forget about yourself. You don't even think about yourself. You're thinking about that baby that was just born, right? A baby that was newly born, not even, not even more than, like, a few months old. And they're going to be shifted to places in, like, Nauru. Like, this is basically, like, in concentration camp mark isaac who's been there calls it a prison so if it's a prison right if it's a prison you're sending to children that is that's that's against human rights and i say human rights in quotation marks because it doesn't seem like human rights particularly matter to australia or or the high court at this moment in time no and going back to that idea that um you know the the high court deemed this okay you know it's it's legal i mean the, the law has never really been a good measure of of ethics, of morality, of the right thing. I mean, if you, as you said before, the um, the indigenous population of Australia was considered the flora and fauna of of the country. You know, uh, you go back and slavery was legal at one point. You know, all of these different things. They're things that in the history books, you know, we look back on them with shame. You know, we we look back on them and we think, well, that was pretty screwed up. We, that shouldn't have been a thing. That should not be like we have this. You know, twenty twenty hindsight, and it's it's great that we have that, I suppose, but. We need to have that foresight to be able to say, hey, this is pretty screwed up. This shouldn't be a thing. We should not be sending children to conditions. We shouldn't be sending anyone to conditions like these. Yeah, and something I want to low-key mention, kind of like um, Daniel Andrews, who made a statement, he said, while I believe in such clearly exceptional circumstances as these, you have a clear obligation to support these children and their families. A political argument is no benefit to them. Instead, I write, to inform you that Victoria will accept full responsibility for all these children and their families, including the provision of health, of housing, health, education, and welfare services. I want these children and their families to call Victoria home. And you know, like people can say this is like, oh, you know, he's, you know, he's just he's just doing this to get like this kind of like all this kind of oh, he's so great and all these kind of praise. But I remember talking like back, um, like uh, before we started the show today. We're saying, like, when you think about it, right? If your opposition, like, if your leader of your party is saying, "Now, nah, we we go with what the high court says," and you're basically towing, you have to tow that company line, don't you? You have to tow that party line. And if any other circumstance, if I would say this is just politicking, politicking um, at the highest degree, but I. Like I genuinely think this is this says something of Daniel Andrews in the sense that he's openly in opposition of his own party to say right. this. 
And I also think like that's probably basic human decency. It is basic human decency, um, right? I know. And it's, it's yeah, going to that I, stage though. Uh, yeah. Like I understand. Um, I understand like it's basic human decency. And I understand that it's also a little bit complex provided that, you know, he is going against his, ho- his own party's um, stance. And, and I don't know how this, this is going to be interesting. You know, we'll come back one week and we'll see how this turns out. It goes beyond the fact that 37 Australian-born babies are going to be sent back um, to Nauru and Manus Island. I think the other sad part is that the fact that in order for us to humanize this kind of pain and sadness is to use 37 Australian-born babies as reason why we need to be against this kind of movement or this um, abrooting of people. Um, I think that's the other sad part. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities. And, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there, no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. And now we move on to a tragic love story gone wrong, a tale of romance, lies, schemes, and even an attempted assassination. This week in Melbourne, a Congolese man was sentenced to nine years in jail after a failed attempt to assassinate his wife of ten years. The story goes that in 2015, Noella Rukundo visited her homeland of Burundi to attend a family funeral. After the funeral, Rukundo retired to her hotel, but once there, she received a call from her husband, who was still in Melbourne asking her to step outside for some fresh air, you know, trying to seem like a very caring and compassionate husband. The moment she did, however, she was approached by a man with a gun, saying that he'd shoot her if he screamed. She was driven away and tied up while the men deliberated what to do with her. Eventually, they decided to let her go, but not before providing her with documented evidence of her husband's plot to kill her, including voice recordings and receipts of the 7000 Australian dollars that her husband had paid to the hitman. Once she was released, she made her way back home and sought the help of her church pastor, who helped her out, didn't mention this to anyone, you know, kept it on the low low because she had a little plan of hers brewing. Um, Meanwhile, the widowed, quote unquote, husband held a wake in his home uh, in which all of Noella's family, her friends, her entire community mourned her apparent death by tragic accident, as he as he put it. Um, Noella, at the time, was sitting in a car outside of her home, and she waited for the last few people to leave her ho- her house. Uh, she then got out of the car and approached her husband, who, as you can expect, was more than a little bit surprised, to say the least. According to Noella, he had to physically touch her to reassure himself that she was not, in fact, a ghost. 
Eventually, she got him to confess during a phone call which was being recorded by the police. Her husband, who I haven't bothered naming until now, was sentenced to nine years in prison, which I feel is quite a, a low amount. In- you, would have, you, would, you would think, like, attempted murder... Attempt, would, attempted assassination. Assassination, let's say. like, would would get you maybe about twenty something oh, years. Just a little, at just least. A, just get just it a, to just double little, digits, you know, at least. I, I would have thought. Yeah. Anyway, the excuse is that the hus- the excuse that the husband has hidden behind was that um, he was afraid that she would leave him for another man. I mean, really? So you're gonna you're gonna kill her, the wife. Who's given you three children? You're gonna kill her because you're afraid that she doesn't like you that much. I mean, that just like like has anyone like I feel this is the best moment to just mention hashtag masculinity so fragile, right? Oh goodness, I mean, this is the very reason why feminism is necessary. This this stupid idea that men are entitled to a woman's body and her life. This notion that oh well, if I can't have her, nobody can. Like what? That's archaic. It's toxic. It's outdated. Like what is wrong with you? I don't. I just I can't understand people who still think like that. And what makes this worse is that okay, so Noella's husband is Congolese and Noella has been receiving a huge backlash from the Congolese community in Melbourne, from death threats to her home being vandalized. And this is a problem that I find with a lot of African communities. Uh, when a person in a specific community, say an African male commits a crime, regardless of how heinous the crime is, his community will defend him to a T, like, even without a shadow of doubt, they will defend him. What did he do wrong? He did nothing wrong, you know, like, you know? Yeah, they, don't, they don't involve so, the police. Why, just, why are you what, doing what that? Say, you know? man, like, he, there, there he's just been, being a guy. You know? Exactly. Been, boys will be boys. Exactly. There have been stories where, um, stories of men who have raped women, and instead of the rapist being reported, the victim and the victim's family were just paid off. You know, you give them a little, like, whatever the figure is, you know, they... Hush money. Exactly, hush money, right? And now for certain issues, I can understand this concept of, you know, sorting, if you can sort something out in-house, you know, why not? Like, if you... Definitely, like, especially kind of like when you have communities that are racialized and there's racialized policing. Exactly. I understand, like, issues like maybe, you know, like, um, drug prevention programs that are run specifically for communities. Um, Like, for example, if there is a high proportion of juvenile... Um, crime, let's say, for example, the community takes it on and talks like and, and does youth programs. I mean, there have been hu- like yeah. countless uh, times where the going to the police has actually done nothing for the community. They've Definitely. not solved the problem, and I can understand that. I can understand but you certain know, situations call though. for you know certain situations call for community action, but there are there's just some things that you just you can't solve in house. Like if this is a, an issue that is affecting the wider community and that is a, a, an issue of safety you have to you have to involve the police you know you you can't just let this be silent yeah and just on that you know i can i mean i don't want to play devil's advocate and i am not going to play devil's advocate but i understand why certain communities would feel hesitant to approach the police because in that in some sense what it does, it it actually furthers um, the racialized policing, and of course, that's not that's no fault of like the community themselves. I feel like it's the fault of the racialized policing because it does happen, and unfortunately, these two problems kind of feed into each other. So, you know, the community itself is afraid of racialized policing, and the police might use cases like this 
to justify the racialized policing. Do you see what I mean? But it's not yeah. entirely that, though. Like, I mean, yes, that is that is a huge portion of why um, you know these communities do do this sort of action. But in this instance, for mm-hmm. example, it's not oh the the police are you know going to profile us and they're going right. to make us look bad. It's it's really just don't send our kid to jail. You know, right. what we don't want right, our right, son right. or our daughter yeah. or our child to be right. sent to jail. So here, take this hush money right. and we'll sort this in-house. And you just, you can't yeah. have that. So it's more like he can't do no, he can't do any wrong. Exactly. Type of thinking, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I guess like, you know, misogyny plays into a lot of communities and manifests differently. And yeah, I mean, this is a case that I've heard of, you know, in like even like South Asian communities, Southeast Asian communities, um, Middle Eastern communities, um, having lived in the Middle East, um, where women are communalized and no one wants to talk about um, women in distress or women facing, um, particularly when it's within community, they don't want the other people to realize that um, women are distressed or women are experiencing domestic violence. Um, yeah. But I mean, props to Noella for you know crashing her own funeral like an absolute boss like that is life goals i feel to be able to just walk up to your own funeral and just shock everyone like literally like i was talking to my like friend yesterday and and they were telling me about this about what happened like i heard about it um and i was like she's just boss like literally can you imagine right saying hey um and thinking about it, she she sat on this. This mm. this this requires patience. This requires thought. This this is like this is like some really really cool shit. Like imagine, right? You know about this. You hanging tight because you know he's done this, and you're like, I'm gonna wait a little bit. And wait. not just wait a little. She waited for the last guest to leave her house before she went in. She wanted to make sure that he was by himself, so he really freaked out. So he saw a ghost. Like he yeah, felt like, oh absolutely. my god, she is haunting me. <laughs> <laughs> and like it's just like, uh, like I would give anything to see that on camera. Like I wish I could see that on video, but I don't think I will. But like that image alone, it is just sweet. It's a story for the ages, really. That one. Bless. I've been in all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. What's up, young thug? No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. 
Blackface has been creeping up in Australian social media with photos of two partygoers and possibly more dressed up in caricatures of indigenous people surfaced over the last week or so. And blackface apologists are coming to the fore. So why are white people so committed to blackface? So blackface has been observed in various times, contexts and communities, such as where to Piet in the Netherlands, depicting a Moorish page boy to Sinterklaas, um, to North America dating back to the 19th century minstrel era where white actors represent black people through exaggerated and essentialist attributes and narratives. Japan's subcultures of mimicking black entertainers, which includes extensive fake dance, and Thailand's theatrical representation of some of its indigenous ethnic communities. Nonetheless, what these practices have in common is the essentialist mockery, dehumanizing nature of reducing other and marginalized people to caricatures. For the sake of this segment, we'll focus on blackface in Western contexts. This includes Australian partygoers dressing up as indigenous people. Like, I don't, like, honest to God, like... It just uh, it doesn't end. It doesn't seem like it's it's at a point of end. Um, after Nakia, Lou, and and Briggs, um, uh, two Indigenous uh, um, actors um, who are part of ABC Black Comedy called out, as as well as I'm pretty sure, um, I think it was Thelma Plum yeah. also called out. Um, you know these 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 racists that are putting on blackface. Uh, as not only not only them, but also people who are commenting on their comment sections and saying some really gracious stuff. Like mm-hmm. it just seemed like it's escalated from there. We've seen people who've gone to the tennis a few, like less than a week ago uh, in support of Serena Williams. So in, in support of Serena, they thought, why don't we just wear her like a freaking costume and put some some blackface on us and, and say we're Serena fans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then more recently, there's been two people that dressed as. Uh, Serena and her sister Venus, and not only didn't put blackface, they put blackface, they they put black paint all over their body, um, and I just like I like, I don't I don't see and understand how, given the history, this is not this is not something like for example people conflate the com- and compare when there is particular like uh, I'm pretty sure there's 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 indigenous culture like in terms of, like Australia where indigenous people put kind of like white paint on their face and that has nothing to do with um, white people right that has nothing to do with white people because it started way before you know white people came to Australia the thing about blackface the thing about the history of blackface it's always been to subjugate it's always been to dehumanize and that's the unique history so for example if um, in if in Western Europe or wherever in Europe there was a culture and, and, um, and kind of like this thing where People from there would always put like blackface on, and that was a part of their culture, in, in, intrinsically a part of their culture. Like, like we gotta have a conversation, and say, "All right, I can understand that," but there's nothing of the sorts. Even when you're talking about Thailand, that was done to dehumanize the indigenous, uh, people. indigenous people of Thailand, yeah. right? So it's like, it's. I feel like it's just it's just a constant reminder of just because we're in 2016. Um, racism hasn't ended. It's just more pervasive, and the way we see humanity is always through a very white lens. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, I think it's very telling when a lot of people say that they can't see how it's dehumanizing. I feel like we, as time progressed, I don't think time has solved racism. I think it has made us complacent towards racism. Yes, it has made us more accepting of racism, which is why we don't see some things as racist. You know, I was I was reading like I don't know what was it a Vice article or something or was it Buzzfeed? I don't remember what I was reading, but it was basically going into the city. Um, 
sorry, yeah, Melbourne City and asking, asking people. people? Yeah, yeah, I saw that article. And a large number of them actually thought blackface was okay. See, this thing, like, um, but that Vice article um, to, to begin with, why are you writing an article asking that question? It's mm. not a question anymore. That question should have yeah. been asked maybe 100, uh, 200 right. years ago back then. It's not a question. We shouldn't be asking, is blackface racist or not? Because mm-hmm. it is racist. Um, and that's not a question. What we should be saying is, why the hell are, are people, people still, still doing, doing, it? doing it? Why the hell has Australia not gotten the memo? Like, I remember last right. year, um, I, I was really upset by a colleague of mine who I'd worked with um, when I was interning at Fox Sports doing blackface. And she knew about the context. Like, her and her friends were joking on, on the feed about, you know, the um, the minstrel kind of, mm. uh, the trope of the minstrels and all that kind of stuff. They knew. They say, ah, oh, hashtag not racist. It's not racist at all. It's not racist, yeah? But they, they knew the context. So, like, I feel like people are just, as you said, complacent about it. And it's just this this idea that, oh, we just didn't know. We're ignorant when you did know. No. Um, I think like ignorance, first of all, is a privilege. The fact that you can be ignorant, um, because one, it doesn't affect you, um, and even if it does affect you, uh, sorry, so yeah, so you can just go about life um, not realizing that it's actually harmful. I think that's a privilege, in and of itself. And like, I, like Zach, I, I like I know we've we've kind of joked. Like I remember before we started the, before we started the show when we were preparing. Like I was telling you, did you see what happened yesterday with the Serena thing? And you were like, you couldn't even look at it. Like, you uh, couldn't I, even. I didn't want to look. No, see, I was in a very raw emotional state after Serena's loss, and I just didn't want to. I, I don't think I'm still ready for for any more negativity towards Serena, especially not from racist white Australians. I can't deal with that. Mm-hmm. I have a certain tolerance level, and it does not include that. I'm sorry. And so um, just coming back to what you were talking about earlier, you were talking about how, you know, this shouldn't be a question whether blackface is racist or not. Well, you know, we're kind of like living in a time in Australia where we're still asking, is Australia a racist country? So this is, you know, this is the kind of discourse that we're having right now. So (laughs) maybe that's why they're still obsessed with blackface. Maybe they haven't progressed. Maybe we haven't progressed as a society. Um, But like you said... But you see those, you know, you see those articles every year, every so often. Usually they come right before Invasion Day. Usually they come just around Anzac Day or any kind of like commemorative day or um, event just happened. Question mark: Is Australia racist? Article think piece by this white person that's writing about it. And I mean, prob- that's the sort of discourse that we were having. That that say, for example, the U.S. was having like decades ago. Like they've gone beyond that. I'm not saying that they're good and they're perfect and they're the utopia or anything yeah. but they've been having this discourse they they finished that discussion years ago decades ago right and we're only just starting it we're only just asking each other oh hey maybe maybe we are a little and it's not even uh you know ethnic people that are saying this it's white people amongst themselves and to everyone else that are just like oh you know maybe we are a little bit racist and it's just Dude, we've gone past this. Like, that is not even an issue let's, anymore. Let's have a discussion. This is the thing. Like, I feel like there's this stagnancy when we talk about like racism, um, and this idea that hey, you're a bad person if you're racist. Like, let's let's, let's like like we don't care about your feelings right now. Let's mm-hmm. let's just let's put that to one side right now, um, and let's talk about how we can go from that. You know what I mean? What yeah. do you do to kind of change your like your perspective of how you see people and how you have in in like in like in unconscious bias and, and dealing with that, right? Um, and, and the conversation is never to have that discussion. It is to ask how, oh, but like, I'm, I, 
I'm a good white person, you know, or I'm right. a good ally, or or I'm this and I'm that, and it's all this kind of like, it's like this self-congratulatory kind of right. aspect of of a lot of people and how they speak, and that doesn't push the discourse any anywhere, kind of yeah. in a like a prog- like in a any sort of way, does it? Right, and I think I, I think you touched on like a really important thing where people look at. Um, being racist as a, a personal failing versus a structural um, fallacy, you know, and and it is it, can, it is also you know partially a personal failing. Yes, you probably shouldn't be racist, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you can kind of work against that. You know what I mean? Once you understand that this is this is part of the structure that you live in, that you know, sure we're not born racist, but we can most definitely grow up in a system that most definitely is, and will you know, probably proliferate for the next few generations. Again, I just want to thank Soreti, who, who's now left, but thank you for coming on the show. Um, thanks for, um, for everyone who's participated and contributed today. Um, uh, you know, that's, you know, remember you can listen on iTunes, Acast, Mixcloud. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, Twitter at The Race Guard, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Rescat show and if you want to find us searching Rescat on iTunes and iCast and Mixcloud you find us um, and that's me saying goodbye and this is me saying thank you for listening and for thank you for listening for you know all the other times we've yeah. done this we're on, we're on episode 27 now I've been here for like over a month now I feel I feel like a an almost veteran You're, you see like I told you you'd be a veteran once on, one day one day I got there <laughs> I got there Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.